to kindergarten ready, what really matters. Kindergarten Ready is a podcast about child development in the first five years. Here, we'll try to uncover what really matters and just what it means to be kindergarten ready. Welcome to Kindergarten Ready. Greetings all, I'm Dr. Jean Ouellette researcher, director of the Language Literacy Learning Lab, and professor of psychology at Mount Allison University. On this episode of Kindergarten Ready, What Really Matters, we're going to invoke the spirit of Monty Pythons, because now it's time for something completely different. This time, let's talk about stress. And in particular, stress in children, given situations like, oh gee, I don't know, maybe a global pandemic? Unfortunately, there'll be no tales of beaches or pelicans, no reenactments from Katrina, but we will hear from some wonderful families about their own personal experiences, which will help highlight one of the main themes of today's show. Spoiler alert, not all kids are the same. Okay, here we go. Let's talk about stress. Kind of wish we didn't have to, but I I think it's only appropriate. As I explained in the trailer that I initially recorded, labeled as episode one, and if you haven't listened to that yet, it's a good place to start to learn about this show. But in that trailer, I, I explained how this podcast has been a long time in the making. Well, when I finally got to actualizing the idea, I knew the first few episodes would be about vocabulary. It was vocabulary, after all, that was really the motivation for this show. And vocabulary is one area that has extended across my career, from my days as a speech pathologist to my current position as a researcher and professor. My first publication in developmental psychology dealt with vocabulary, and that very much launched my career. It was a no-brainer to me that this show would start with a few episodes about vocabulary. As I started prepping those shows and doing some of the initial recording, well, that's when our world changed. It was actually mid-March, and I was partway through prepping that first episode when we were put into social isolation. I even considered putting this whole project on hold, but then I thought, no, maybe more than ever, people might be looking for a diversion, something to listen to. And child development might actually be quite timely, given that families will find themselves at home. So I finished off those first couple of episodes on vocabulary, had those two episodes in the can, so to speak. I think that's the right podcast lingo. Uh, in the can kind of meant something else when I was growing up, but I think that's podcast lingo now. At least we'll, we'll go with that. So I finished off those two episodes, and then I thought, what will be next? And it only seemed to make sense to me that we probably should talk about our current situation. Consistent with the whole history of this podcast, things got delayed, and those first episodes didn't launch until several weeks after when I thought they would, which meant now, by the time I'm around to the next episode, a lot of the social isolation, a lot of the shelter-in-place restrictions are being lifted around the world. So then I thought, okay, maybe I don't have to do this episode on stress anymore. But then again, I thought, we don't know how this reopening is going to go. Also, different places in the world are at different stages, and there's also a really good chance that there's going to be a rebound, and we may find ourselves back in this situation in the fall. So here we are. We're going ahead with an episode about stress. But in particular, we're going to focus on stress in children. Okay, let's ask the question then. What is it? I'm pretty sure you're all thinking, well, I know what stress is. Believe me, I know what stress is. But you know what? It's one of those things when you actually try to define it, it's not so easy to do. Actually, giving definitions in general is a very difficult task. But when you think about what stress is, I think we know the feeling, we have an idea, but it's hard to put into words. 
If we look at the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used for psychological disorders, it defines stress. And now, granted, this is with respect to more severe manifestations as a disorder, but they define stress with reference to symptoms from, quote, any of the five categories of intrusion, negative mood, dissociation, avoidance, and arousal, beginning or worsening after a traumatic event has occurred. Okay, that seems a little technical. Let's think about stress in a more general sense. Well, there's more than one way to conceptualize stress. There's different models out there. One of the more prominent frameworks is to evaluate the stress-inducing situation relative to our ability to cope. For adults, we have numerous daily stressors, typically all within our means of coping, right? And if we can cope, then we don't necessarily feel the anxiety response that would define a super stressful situation. It's when the situation exceeds our ability to cope that we perceive extreme stress. In children, there may be stressors as well, but they're typically handled just fine, actually. These are often referred to as tolerable stressors. They're dealt with just fine. Children are actually quite resilient. And you know what? Resiliency is actually a topic that we are going to return to in a later episode because it's an area of huge importance in child development. But for now, let's acknowledge that children are actually quite naturally resilient to stress. That is, so long as there is an emotionally available caregiver. Attachment is another issue that we'll return to in a later episode. And I know I keep saying that, and I apologize for, for all these teasers and then saying that we'll return to these areas later. But I do want to stay on the topic of stress for today. But the number one protective factor for children is attachment. That is, if they have an adult in their life who they see as a secure emotional base, that leads to resiliency in dealing with stress. Now again, these are for what we call the tolerable stressors. These are different from what may be referred to as toxic or intolerable stress. For adults, these are situations which exceed our ability to cope. For children, these are typically situations that take away the availability of the secure emotional base. If you think of something like family violence, illness or death in the family, parental conflict or separation, that sort of thing, where the emotional base that the child has is actually compromised. And this is where you'd see the biological manifestations of stress, along with the cognitive or thought-related components, such as rumination, negative self-talk, worry, and related processes that can compromise mental health. What are we dealing with here in terms of a global pandemic? Obviously, it's a very serious situation, but it's a situation that may still seem at arm's length from the family unit. Well, for children, it most likely falls somewhere in between the two types of stress just described. In all likelihood, it's going to actually be closer to a tolerable level of stress so long as there is emotional support. Again, the number one protective factor for children in stress is to have a secure emotional base. With this, they not only cope, but they can actually learn from experiences and thrive. And that is the very definition of resiliency. What should we do about it? So, guess what the number one recommendation is for these times? Be there, be available be that emotional base. Beyond that, well, there's actually no shortage of advice out there if you just do a Google search. But you might ask, just like Katrina did when I mentioned putting together this show, what does the research say? And here I think we need to go off on a brief tangent just to clear up one misconception of research and child development. And I have alluded to this in the past, and that is that research and child development is not always cut and dry. It's not always black and white. It's actually a very distinct shade of gray. I think the best example it can think of in terms of research methodology is that of a drug study. Often referred to as the gold standard in research methodology is the double-blind experimental design. And you can think of that in terms of a drug study. 
Say you want to test drug A. Well, we know that sometimes just knowing you're on a drug can have psychological impact on recovery. So therefore, you want to test that drug against another drug, maybe a placebo. We also know that there's bias if you know that you're taking the drug. So we can't actually tell the patient's if they're taking the drug or the placebo. And sometimes there might be bias in the primary practitioner in how they'll respond to that patient if they know. So they can't know either. So double blind refers to the fact that the patient and the primary person of contact, neither of them know who is taking the real drug versus the placebo, right? So that's your classic double blind experimental setup for drug testing. Well, we don't do that in child development. We can't take some children, expose them all to a stressor, We'll deal with some of them one way, some of them the other way, and somehow have some control for bias. Like It just doesn't work that way. So the, the true experimental design, especially one that controls for bias and psychological factors, is very rare in child developmental research. So when we ask, what does the research say? We have to acknowledge the research is far less direct. It actually comes in three main streams. The first stream is referred to as quasi-experimental. That means that something has happened to these children, but it's happened naturally, not due to a manipulation by the researcher. So we can't take children and expose them to stress, but we can find children who have been exposed to stress in their lives and study them. This is done retrospectively. There's all kinds of confounds in terms of variables that are beyond control of the experimenter. The other type of research is correlational. And that is the type of research where uh, different measures are taken and then statistical relations are examined within those variables. So for example, we could measure a level of stress and we could measure personality, language, cognitive variables, family variables, degrees of attachment, etc., and see how all these things relate to one another. There is no direct manipulation by the researcher. Rather, there's simply observations being made and patterns of relationships amongst those observations examined. Correlational evidence plays a really important role in research and child development, but it is limited in that you don't necessarily know what causes what. For example, consider an area of study like video game play. There's been concern over the years about children playing violent video games if that leads to increased aggression. Well, you can measure children in terms of how often they play violent video games and then measure them on some aspect of their aggressive behavior and see if those two factors relate to each other. But if they do, that doesn't necessarily mean that playing those video games caused the children to be more violent. Perhaps they had violent tendencies and that's why they like the video games. Or there's also the so-called issue of the missing variable. There could be something else not being studied that explains the relationship. For example, it could be based upon a personality factor. It could be based upon the child being exposed to violence in the home. Without a direct manipulation, as in an experimental design, correlational designs cannot with great confidence, state causality. The point is, we can't say for sure if one thing causes another when the research is done correlationally. And most research in child development is correlational. The third stream of research is what I refer to as the indirect through theory stream. And that is, we can look at other areas of child development, for example, theories of cognitive or thought development, theories of language development, look at how the research supports those theories and then extrapolate what that means to another topic. So for example, we can think of how children process information and language at different ages and use that information to come up with ideas of how best to handle stress in children. So it's a much less direct path than many people think. So basically, when we look at what the research says, we have to acknowledge, well, that research has limitations, and it's a really complicated picture. 
which is why I advocate for people not just to be skeptical of advice that they're given, but also to be skeptical of the person giving the advice. My training as a researcher and academic involves understanding research methodology, statistical analysis, knowing how to analyze research and synthesize and disseminate the results from that research. That's what I'm trained to do. But all too often, especially in the world of social media, self-declared experts actually lack that training and background. This is why we need to not only be skeptical of the information that we're given, but also of the source. My role here today is to be that disseminator of information based upon analyzing and synthesizing the research and data that are out there, with the full caveat that the research is not cut and dry. So there is room for interpretation. And as I alluded to at the start of this show, one of the main themes that I want you to keep in mind today is that not all kids are the same. No matter what the research says, we have to interpret it with respect to our own children. Okay, I hope that makes sense. That was a bit of a tangent uh, about research methodology and credentialization. Back to the topic at hand. Well, a good place to start would be the World Health Organization, or WHO. Now, regardless of your politics and what the President of the United States has to say about this organization, it is a respected organization compiled of true experts. It's a really good starting point. I'll put the link in the show notes, but you can find this by simply Googling the WHO recommendations on on childhood stress, or I'll give you the title. It's called Helping Children Cope with Stress During the 2019 NCOV Outbreak. You can just Google that. But again, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. This starts with a preamble of how kids may show stress in different ways, such as being more clingy, anxious, seeming agitated, etc. And then the remainder of the page revolves about, guess what? Being there for them, being that secure emotional base. So it's actually very compatible with what I've already said in this show, which is really the primary finding from research on stress in children. The handout also touches upon the importance of routines, which is really relevant and has a great deal of psychological research behind it. Kids thrive with routines. Sometimes in the era of free-range parenting and school reform movements, we forget that routines and structure are actually beneficial to the developing child. This is still true even if you're stuck at home all day. It's pretty well universally recommended among the experts that children should still have regular routines to follow. Mealtimes, bedtimes, waking up, Children also respond well to schedules and knowing what those schedules are. Children, especially ones who may be anxious, benefit from knowing what's going to happen and when. As tempting as it may be to spend all day in your pajamas, uh, and that might be a nice treat now and then, it probably shouldn't be the norm. Now, I should also add a disclaimer here that I think at these times more than ever, we need to cut ourselves a little slack and not be overly critical in terms of whether or not we're always doing the right thing, and we need to be flexible. This notion of flexibility, and also the importance of tailoring to the individual child, really came through in some conversations I've had recently with families. Let's start off hearing from Jessica, a mother of four, two school-aged children, a four-year-old, and a new baby. The family lives on a farm. The husband is an essential worker, so has been working outside of the home since the start of the shelter-in-place situation. The mom would have been at home on the farm with the baby anyhow, so that hasn't changed. But what has changed, obviously, is that all the kids are now home from school. In this clip, Jessica talks about how she implemented structure, but yet maintained flexibility in dealing with the older children at home. At first, before the schools even sent anything home, um, I had my poor children made them uh, do schoolwork pretty much right away um, to their dismay. But yeah, I still made them... um, do reading and some math and I had just kind of come up with my own 
way to make sure that they weren't losing what they had already learned. Um, since this school has sent stuff home, we've changed it a little bit in that at the beginning, I was pretty particular on this is what we were doing at this time of the day. And I've, uh, I've learned that that doesn't work very well. Um, cause my kids are so different. So my 10 year old is like a morning person. He is up at six and he wants to plow through his homework. And then he wants the rest of the day to do his own sort of thing and play games and, and none of his friends get up early. So if he wants to play games with his friends online, then they're not awake yet anyway. So he likes to get up early and, and he can have his schoolwork done by 7.30 in the morning and had breakfast and he's good for the day. Like now my almost 12 year old, she needs time. So she doesn't crawl out of her room until I usually yell down about nine o'clock because that's, that's, about, <laughs> that's about as late as I let her sleep anyway. But um, because she'll take an hour just to wake up. To, to have breakfast and and to really mentally prepare to even start doing anything so she can take all day to do her homework she just kind of putters away and and does it at her own speed and she can't be rushed so we've kind of taken the structure away from this is what i want to accomplish at this time of day and had a as long as you've accomplished these subjects at your own speed, as long as it gets done, I'm happy. The kids are so different. And I can't, you can't just make a, this is what we're going to do because it just doesn't fit with all of them. We hear a similar theme of flexibility while also balancing expectations with reality from another mom, Lindsay, who also has four children, age 10, 7, five in 19 months, all finding themselves at home in this shelter in place situation. Oh my goodness. Like in the beginning, like that first weekend, Friday, when we found out there was no school, we like set up this classroom in the basement and we had a sign and everyone had their own desk and it was like magic. We had a schedule, this very colorful schedule. We were like following their school routine, having recess and that lasted for like a week. And then that wasn't particularly fun anymore like we figured out pretty quickly that I suck as a teacher (laughs) right because I well we still have to work so it was like you're going to be down in your classroom on your own teaching yourself um so I feel like it's just a continual work in progress so we're still doing it but um without much pressure, I guess. And then we try to just look for learning opportunities and things like going for walks and baking and reading together and that kind of stuff. Another aspect of the Who handout talks about creativity. Now this, I guess the intent is just to highlight the importance of having some free and creative play, allowing downtime in addition to the structured time. And I think it's probably relevant to add to this that we should also be aware of the amount of screen time. And finally, the WHO handout ends with advice on keeping kids in the loop. It suggests providing accurate and clear information to children about what is happening. This is a recommendation I think we need to do a deeper dive into. The whole intent behind my tangent about research methodology earlier 
is to highlight the fact that recommendations, even from a panel of experts, aren't necessarily the right ones for every child. And I think this recommendation really needs some qualification. There are two driving factors in child development that seem to be missing here. One is maturation. The other is individual differences. Maturation simply refers to changes over time, and in particular, over age. A two-year-old is not the same as a three-year-old, is not the same as a four-year-old, is not the same as a five-year-old. We have to take into account maturation. Advice of how to speak to a two-year-old about COVID-19 is not going to be the same as how you may speak to a five-year-old. The other factor I mentioned is that of individual differences. And that basically is saying that not all children are the same, even if they're the same age. Not all three-year-olds are the same. Not all four-year-olds are the same. Not all five-year-olds are the same. And it's not that some are more advanced than others. There might be differences in cognitive and linguistic skills, but they also differ in terms of temperament or early personality. Some children might be highly anxious. Some might not be anxious at all. Some could care less. This individual variation in how children respond to stressful situations, like a global pandemic, is again highlighted in conversations I've had with families about this very topic. Let's hear from Jessica on the farm again, in response to me asking if her four-year-old Maddie has shown signs of awareness or any signs of anxiety, given the current situation. It amazes me how well she takes it. Um, she doesn't understand it, obviously. She, right. just, yeah. she doesn't get it. The, the poor kid, she kind of, she thinks that we're sick and, and just sick, like, you know, we have a cold or we have the flu or whatever, um, which she knew before, you know, if you're sick, you don't go around people, you could make them sick. Yeah. She just, she, she thinks that we're sick. And so we stay home so that we don't, uh, we don't make other people sick. We don't spread it to others, but, um, we found some really cool things online to explain germs the whole like uh, plate with water and pepper in it and, and dipping your finger in dish soap and it makes the pepper spread to the edges. And uh, we did that with her. Yeah, we explained it as far as, as far as she can understand, which really isn't, isn't yeah. a whole lot. She's, she takes it like a trooper. She's pretty, I don't know, she's pretty, I guess all my kids are pretty resilient. And here's Lindsay again, talking about the awareness of her four-year-old Maud. It's interesting because I think if you'd asked me to envision this scenario, I would have thought that the most significant impacts would be to our eldest child. She's handled it much more easily than we anticipated. I think Maud has felt the most significant impacts. And I don't know if that's just around cognitive understanding of a global pandemic, but um, she misses her friends. She really misses her teacher. She often is very sad at bedtime about her teacher. She misses the social aspect of school very much. She also seems to have the biggest fears around the pandemic. Like early on, she asked me what color the coronavirus was so that if she was outside, she could avoid it. Right. Like that. It's just this, like, what is it? This kind of nebulous thing. You know, could we put like a force field in place to keep it out of Sackville? Like those kind of questions. And I think her sisters have a kind of a more advanced understanding. So they're not thinking about it that way. And how did you explain things to her then at, at her age? Um, I think we just really mostly focused on like being safe, like that it's something that will make you sick. But it's not 
in our community. So we're just going to be really careful and wash our hands and only go out when we absolutely have to. And um, that if we did get it, we would be able to get better again. Like we haven't not talked about it, but we haven't really focused a lot of our attention on it either. And even younger children can be aware of the situation we're in, depending upon their disposition and their own individual situation. I wanted to share a bit of a conversation I had with one more family. This is a younger family living in an urban environment. When we talked via Zoom, unfortunately, for some reason, I had a very bad connection, so I apologize for the quality issues in this next clip, but I do think it's important to share. This young family agreed to talk to me at 9 o'clock at night, because that was basically the first chance they had that day to sit down to talk. So I want to honor them in that respect and include part of our conversation we had together because I think it's insightful, again, just about the individual differences that exist between children. So we are a family of four. Um, my eldest daughter is three, just over three years old. Her name is Sloan. And we have a newborn who's three months old, um, Bodie. You know, the first thing that kind of happened for us was the daycare closed. Um, so we had Sloan home for uh, when Bodie was about a month. Uh, and at first I think she thought it was like awesome yeah she she was into it it was something new um her baby brother was here she's really into him um and so it wasn't too bad it was hectic for us obviously I was planning on keeping her in daycare while I kind of got acclimatized to just having a newborn again and then I'd say maybe a month Around a month, over a month uh, yeah, of being kind of home and self-isolating that she started to kind of show some signs of anxiety. And so it, it, I thought it took her a decent amount of time. I was actually pretty happy. She was happy for a while. And then I think around a month, she kind of got kind of tired of, of being home, stuck at home because the weather was terrible. And I was with the, the baby all the time. So I couldn't like you know, I couldn't just release her out and not be able to look after her. So that was a bit tough for her. And then she started kind of missing her friends because we would do a few FaceTimes with a couple of the kids in daycare that she was closest to. And I think that actually didn't have the opposite effect. Like, I think it did help, but I think it also kind of made her realize that, oh, wait, we're not at daycare. We haven't been there for a while. Um, and now I'm missing my friends. So I'm realizing it. When we started to not be able to go on the playground, I think is when she kind of started having like a lot more questions, like even more so than not going to daycare. And uh, and then that's when we had to kind of start introducing, okay, well, there are germs and viruses and, and we can't touch things because we don't know where the germs or viruses are. And that's kind of how we introduced the idea, this whole virus to her. Um, and I think she's, she's pretty receptive. Like she gets it from a minimalist perspective, a three-year-old perspective, she gets it, but she's starting to kind of get like, this is annoying. When is the virus leaving? (laughs) But I'm over it, which everybody is. (laughs) Coping with what's going on in the world. She seems to, like Lindsay said, she gets it at a three-year-old level that there's germs, there's virus. Sometimes it's very difficult to go out in the world and try to tell a three-year-old to not touch things because there's germs or viruses on it. However, I will say she has she's been getting been way getting, better. Yeah, with getting that. better about that, that's for sure. And we've actually now been talking about masks and all that stuff. And she was saying, oh, because it was her friend's birthday. And she's yeah. like, well, can we go to their house? I'll wear, a, basically, I'll wear a mask. I'll wear a mask. Like, okay. But We're like, oh, no, no, 
do we explain this? We can't see friends yet. Yeah, like. <laughs> All of these kids are actually quite advanced cognitively and language-wise. They come from highly stimulating environments but they have different personalities. The point is, there can't be a one-size-fits-all list of recommendations or advice. There just can't be. So let me rephrase that last recommendation from the Who handout. Yeah, let's keep kids in the loop, but only if it's appropriate for that given child, based upon maturation, based upon their age, but also based upon their individual characteristics, their cognition, their language, and their personality. If you do decide to have those conversations, keep it simple. And let's curate or filter the information they need to know. When I was looking online, I actually came across a website called Zero to Three. I'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. And for children zero to three, they actually recommend not having direct conversations at all. They give some really good examples of how to respond to children. And you can see this is actually going against the who recommendation. For example, they say, if the child says, why can't I play with the little boy over there? The response that they recommend is something along the lines of, we have to take a break from playing with others so we can all stay healthy. If a child asks, will I get sick? You could respond, everybody gets sick sometimes. If you get sick, mom or dad will take care of you until you are better. From a maturation perspective, this organization is recommending not to have overly explicit conversations with your children about the global pandemic. But again, we have to take into account individual differences. Sometimes it might be appropriate for a three-year-old if they are very aware, as we heard earlier. Before I sign off for now, let me stress, huh, no pun intended, that it's completely normal to be anxious in these times. Be there, be available, be the emotionally secure base we know is important in development. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, take a break, go for a walk, take a shower, or just take some deep breaths. Hey, I don't know, listen to a podcast about kindergarten readiness. Normalcy will return to our lives eventually. That is a guarantee. We just don't know when. So let's try to avoid catastrophizing and ruminating on what is beyond our control. What is within our control is how we spend our time with our families. And always remember, we're not perfect. And you know what? We don't need to be. I'm going to sign off tonight with a clip from one of the mothers we heard from earlier on this very topic. Words of wisdom to leave you with tonight. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everybody. It's hard, like, just like the guilt of it all. I think that I'm sure is a common theme across all families, like every parent, like Henry and I talk about it all the time. Like you feel like you're crap at your job and you're mm-hmm. racing your kids and your house is a disaster. And But then last night, um, we have this book that's like we do at dinner time. It's like just a question of the day. And one of the questions was like, what's the three words to describe your family? And Fiona was like, I would just say like funny and crazy and happy. Like, oh, oh, that's good, that's good words. <laughs> because those aren't the words I would pick every day <laughs> in this experience, because sometimes it's like, it's a slog. Right. Mm. And I feel like we're all trying, I guess it's in the social media age to like present ourselves as all this, like, Oh, it's all so magical. And that's just not, I don't know. It's not our reality. Like it's like highs and lows. Yeah. No, I mean, that's an excellent point. And I think a lot of people do, they beat themselves up mm-hmm. over what's happening where, yeah, it's, if there's ever a time to cut yourself some slack. Totally. Like <laughs> this is it. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Cause my mom who obviously is seeing it from a completely different lens, she's like, you're doing like so many amazing things together. And it's nice to have someone else's perspective. Of, mm-hmm. Right.
yeah, like we're just trying, I guess, to take advantage of this time together because that part's super special, really. You've been listening to Kindergarten Ready, What Really Matters, a podcast about child development in the first five years. Kindergarten Ready is a production of the Language Literacy Learning Lab. For more information about the show, check us out at www.kindergartenreadywhatreallymatters.com. Kindergarten Ready!